right, Genesis 49 tonight. As we look at Jacob's prophecy, as we move through the book of Genesis, Genesis 49, we're going to start in verse 1, and let's go ahead and pray. Father, we are here tonight to honor you with our presence here, to search into the scriptures. Your, your word is like a searchlight. It searches our hearts. It illuminates a path where to walk. It teaches us lessons about life, how to live, and even in this chapter, how to die. And as we look at it, Lord, we're going to see Jacob's prophecy. It's really a blessing slash predictive prophecy. And it's, it's an opportunity that not all people get to live a long life and then have a chance to speak into your family, into your sons before you leave the planet. But Jacob was afforded that opportunity. And Lord, there's a reminder here, since this is rare even in the Bible, that there's there's no guarantee that we're going to have that. So we pray that we'll say the things that we need to say now. And uh, any regrets we may have, we can just lay at your feet. But tonight, Lord, we want to learn. We want to learn from the authoritative, inspired word of God, which is alive and profitable. It truly profits when the ground is ready to receive it. When the soil is prepared, when the heart is ready to say, Lord, I'm your servant, I'm listening, speak. I want to obey you. I want to learn your wisdom. So tonight, Lord, we lay this time at your feet and pray you take it where you want it to go. Open our hearts and our ears to your word. What the Spirit would say to us, we want to hear and respond to. So we pray that you'll lead it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So we've had kind of a, a prolonged a section where Jacob is dying, and uh, we're in chapter 49 of a book that has 50 chapters, and so the book of beginnings is coming to an end. The book of Genesis literally means beginnings, that's what the word means, and it's coming to an end, and we're in the second to the last chapter, chapter 49, and we're in verse 1, and this is where Jacob has given a cross-handed blessing to the sons of Joseph. Remember, Ephraim and Manasseh had come in. He went through this kind of formal adoption process where he brought Ephraim and Manasseh in and kind of gave them, switched up the blessing, and the younger one received the blessing instead of the older. Joseph tried to stop it. Dad said, no, this is the way things are going to be. And in doing so, when Ephraim and Manasseh were adopted into Jacob's family, really became like his children, what it accomplished was it allowed a double portion to go to Joseph. And since Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel, what really happened was Jacob, through God's providence, uh, allowed Joseph to have this extra blessing. And of course, Joseph, you know, became very fruitful and so forth, as we'll see later in the chapter. Now, after summoning uh, Joseph, he is going to summon the rest of his sons. This is chapter 49, verse 1. It says, Then Jacob, 49.1, summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what shall befall you. If you have the NIV, it says, Happen to you in the days to come. So Jacob's deathbed experience is going to become prophetic, or you could say predictive. Now, when we look at the word prophecy, prophecy is not always predictive. Sometimes prophecy is simply just speaking forth truth that's already there. It's not predictive in nature. But in this case, what Jacob is about to do is give what we would call a blessing slash prophecy, if you want to just kind of note that. It's a blessing with some predictive elements to it. 
and he's going to speak to each of his sons. And uh, as he does, he summons his sons. He summons them in. A, you can almost picture, you know, if you've ever had a loved one who's on a deathbed and they have a chance to speak words, this is what's going on here. Each of the sons will be addressed. And even though this is categorized as a blessing, some of the words that are shared are not going to be very pleasant words. They're going to be truthful words, but not pleasant words. So even though it is technically a blessing, it is predictive in nature, and uh, Jacob is going to speak into the lives of his son. He's going, sons. He's going to speak to them about days to come, and this is coming from a man who certainly his whole life was changed by God. Uh, Jacob was renamed Israel. Israel, I told you, I think the, probably the closest we have to define the name of Israel is God prevails. And what Jacob kept learning over and over again is that despite what he tried to do, even in times when he was a conniver and manipulative and all of that, God's will prevailed. But it doesn't mean that there's not consequences when we try to fight God's will. It doesn't mean things don't uh, happen to us uh, because we go the other way, and that's going to be here as well. But this could be categorized as what we would say is a patriarchal blessing from a man who wrestled with God and found out that God does prevail. In Genesis 50, verse 20, if you skip ahead for a second, we'll end the book in these verses. But Genesis 50, 20, I've been suge suggesting to you that this is probably as good as any is of a theme verse for the book of Genesis. And as for you, Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, Joseph speaking to his brothers, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result and to preserve many people alive. Genesis 50 verse 20 is the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament and it tells us that God's will prevailed despite all the ugliness. If you just kind of, if you've been with us through the whole book of Genesis, you've seen how many ugly things happened to this family. This family was by no means a perfect family. And that, as we've gone along, we've said, boy, that gives me hope that God can choose a, you know, a salty bunch like this and get his will done. Boy, it's a great thing. And so uh, this is what occurs in the book as Jacob is now going to speak this blessing to his sons. Uh, Joseph and Judah are going to take, I think, 15 of the 25 verses. They're going to be the focus. But notice verse 2. He says, Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. The Bible is filled with uh, wisdom from fathers to sons. Fathers really pleading to their sons to listen, 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 and listen some more. Mothers are also uh, shown this way in the book of Proverbs. Listen to the wisdom of your father. Listen to the wisdom of your mother. The man who wrote that, those uh, words, was a man who was blessed with wisdom, although he didn't always live out what he knew. Anybody kind of that way? We know things, but it doesn't mean we always align our wisdom with our walk. That's one of the things that God wants us to do. He wants you to, every time you get a nugget of wisdom, He wants you to align your walk with what you learn. He wants you to align your walk with the wisdom, and your Father has great wisdom for you, and earthly fathers, of course, those who are walking with the Lord especially, have wisdom to give. And so Israel, he's, this is a sense of urgency. If ever you want to say what's important, it's now. Amen? You're on your deathbed. You want to impart wisdom to your sons. 
And the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom from a father to a son. And so he addresses the firstborn, verse 3. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might and the beginning of my strength. Some would say you could say this in a modern way. You are my pride and my joy. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Reuben, you are my firstborn. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob's marriage to Leah. And Leah was not uh, Jacob's true love. Rachel was. But we know what Uncle Laban did. He snuck in the oldest daughter first. And many of the sons, the first sons, were born to Leah. And of course, Rachel was barren. And Reuben was the firstborn. And Reuben's name means, I, I think, behold a son is his name. And Reuben is the firstborn. He says, my pride and my joy, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. He had the rightful position. But what you're going to see in a moment is that Reuben did not hold that position. He lost it. And he lost the position by his poor actions. Israel in Exodus 4:22 and 23 is called Yahweh's firstborn. When Moses speaks on behalf of God to the Pharaoh, he says, "Let Israel go. Israel is my firstborn. Let them go and let them serve me." Israel was the people of God. God chose them. He chose Abram and then Isaac and Jacob. And it wasn't because they were greater than any people and all of that, but God chose them and he put them in a a preeminent position. We often say that Israel is the chosen people of God. To them belong the promises and the covenants, Romans chapter 9. A preeminent spot they were given. Advantages they were given. Spiritual advantages. They were given the law. They were given the direct presence of God as he led them out of Egypt. However, what did Israel do with the privilege? How would you measure how they did? Israel is my firstborn. Let my people go. Let them come and serve me and worship me on this mountain. How did Israel do with the privilege? Not so good. Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentile nations. But the Gentile nations really, in many ways, ended up corrupting Israel. And Israel imbibed or embraced the ways of the pagans after many warnings from God. When you go into the land, don't learn their detestable practices. This is the reason that I'm driving them out before you. I want you to be a holy people, a pure people. But Israel went into the promised land and they blew it. And when they went into Babylonian captivity, the final deportation in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, do you know how many people of that generation, 70 years in Babylonian captivity, returned to the promised land to rebuild? You know how many? 2%. 2% of them went back and tried to rebuild, and God had given them promises. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. And even though God spoke those words and said, look, I'm going to restore the fortunes, they didn't do well with it. You can be given a ball to run with, but what you do with it is in many ways up to you. You can, I can hit you the tennis ball, but you got to decide what you're going to do with it. We often say in modern vernacular, the ball is in your court. What do we mean by that? We mean you got to do something with it. You got to walk in the good works that God's prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And if ever there's an example of a people chosen, set apart, specially loved by God, who completely fumbled the ball, 
It's Israel. And would to God that we learn the lesson that, and that's not us. Would to God that we see the spiritual privileges that we have and we run well with them. Amen? So that we don't drop the ball in our generation. Reuben had this great privilege. He was the firstborn. The firstborn typically got at least a double portion. They got the place of preeminence. But Reuben forfeited his place. And the reason he forfeited his place is because of sexual sin. Sexual sin has been the long blight of humanity. Sexual sin is a category in and of itself because 1 Corinthians 6 says, when a man commits sexual sin, he sins against his own body. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, he, he debunks a, uh, a notion around the Greek world which was called Greek dualism. And some of the philosophers uh, who ran in Greek circles said, you can do whatever you want with your body because your body's made up of matter and matter's evil. Only your spirit is really truly pure. So you can do whatever you want with your body and you can retain the purity of your spirit. And Paul says, no, you can't. No, you can't. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, some of us, Maybe, maybe many of us in this room have had, have had to learn lessons the hard way. Romans chapter 1 uh, paints this picture of mankind in rebellion to God, idolatrous, professing to be wise, they become fools, and it digresses into a group of individuals who start doing unnatural and ridiculous things with their bodies. Reuben did something very silly it's kind of hard to understand. He slept with his father's concubine. Her name was Bilhah. She was from the south. Bilhah. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know where she was from. She was an older woman. She was the concubine of Jacob. And for some reason, he slept with her. And there's some conjecture about this. Some, some scholars believe that he did this because he didn't want Leah... Uh, after the death of Rachel, um, which happens in the same chapter, he didn't want Leah to lose her special place. So maybe he was trying to protect mom. So some scholars say he wanted to defile Bilhah to put her in a category, category of a defiled woman so Leah would get all the attention. Some say that Reuben was actually trying to usurp his father's inheritance and, and trying to kind of sneak in there and make sure that he had everything for himself. But here's how Jacob, as he prophesies to Reuben, says, you, he says, are uncontrolled as water. Now, can you imagine, Reuben came up as the firstborn, probably bebopping in the room. All right, cool, firstborn, let's see what dad's going to give me. Yeah! Reuben... You're my pride and my joy. It was looking good for a while. And then all of a sudden it turns. He said, you are as uncontrolled as water. Now we've been uh, looking in our world and we see a lot of places that have been flooded. And you know when floods happen, man, when water has nowhere to go, it's disastrous. Uh, where's the, there's been a flood recently. Where, what's the area of the world? Anybody know? Is it Peru? And I know there's been a number of deaths they are still trying to dig up. Uh, you know, bodies and, and so forth. It's been devastating. And here, Reuben is described as uncontrolled as water. And so notice what he says. The, the firstborn had preeminence, but he says, you shall not have preeminence because, here's the reason, you went up to your father's bed, 
then you defiled it. And then it's almost as if he, as he moves away from speaking directly to Reuben, he says, look at the end of verse four, he went up to my couch. It's almost like there's a note of surprise as he addresses the other sons. It, it's, a, it's a strange thing. It's a weird thing uh, when this kind of sexual sin happens. And it happened in 1 Corinthians 5 where there was a man in the Corinthian church who actually was sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul said, this kind of stuff is not even done among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers. And that man who's in your fellowship... You've allowed a banner of grace to be woven over his life instead of just saying to him, look, this is wrong. This is not what you do. And Reuben defiled uh, his father's bed. He went up. He did the wrong thing. Uh, Wenham, Wenham, who's a, one of the commentators on the book of Genesis, says, um, he says There's, uh, this is one of the fiercest denunciations in the book of Genesis. Would you note the word uncontrolled? <clears throat> Genesis, uh, excuse me, Galatians 5.23 says, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. A person who is dominated by the Spirit, and when we went through the book of Titus on Sundays, we've been talking about godliness can be defined as a God-centered or God-dominated life. When your life is not dominated by the Spirit, you start doing things that are out of bounds. Uh, you lack self-control. Look, if you lack self-control tonight, it's because the Spirit's not dominating your life. That's just the bottom line. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. That's just it. Now, it takes a while for some things to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We all would acknowledge that tonight. But for Reuben, he made this dumb decision uh, it seems like it was in a moment of lust or whatever, whatever was behind it, but <clears throat> it defiled. Jacob says, you went up to my couch, you defiled my bed, you slept with a woman that belonged to me, you committed adultery. And so here's the truth of the matter, folks, and <clears throat> I know you all know this, but I'm gonna remind you because I'm in the reminding business. You never sin in a vacuum. I want to take you back to the, the beginning of the book of Genesis. God said to Adam and Eve, you can have of all these trees of the garden, there's only one tree I don't want you to mess with. What did they do? They messed with the tree. In Genesis 3, when God clothed them, remember they tried to use fig leaves to cover themselves, and fig leaves are not great covering, especially on a windy day, <laughs> right? So God, God, killed some animals, that's what seems to be the case, and he clothed them. Can you imagine the horror of Adam and Eve? They had, to my knowledge of what was happening in the world at that time, they did not know death. Now animals had to die because of their sin. Uh, their sons, Cain and Abel, what happened? Cain ends up killing Abel. And death now becomes commonplace for mankind. There's a flaming sword that rotating in every direction keeps them from the tree of life and they go out. And do you know, Adam lived over 900 years and from what I can see in scripture, he never saw the face of God again. 
He was barred from the garden. He used to walk with God in the cool of the day. It would appear at sunset or sometime like that. God would meet them and he would walk with Adam and Eve and they saw his face and they took things for granted as we often can. And once they were barred from the garden, can you imagine living 900 plus years? Adam got to see God's face. There was no sin, no curse, no shame. But once sin came in and the serpent said, oh, you're not going to die. Everything will be fine. Oh, yeah. And the whole human race was plunged into a condition of sin and death. And this is why we die. The sin of Adam and Eve, the fall of Adam and Eve has rippled out. Think of sin's consequences. Rippled out to how many lives? Those of you who are mathematicians, just think about the projections. Not just human life, but animal life. Think about the implications of one decision. Now, the good news of the gospel is, look, we've all sinned. Amen? I know you don't want to say amen to we've all sinned, right? You want to say something better than that. But amen just means, yeah, we agree, right? So you can even amen things that hurt. You can say it with a little pain. Amen. But I feel you. Look, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus took our shame and punishment at the cross. It interests me that when um, Jesus was dying on the cross, there's a lot of scholars that believe he was naked on the cross. And Adam and Eve uh, first experienced shame and realized their nakedness after the fall. Jesus is dying on the cross and uh, he despised the shame, the Bible says. He despised it. But he did it for the joy that was set before him. A decision, one decision, 10 minutes of your life, and all of a sudden, things change. I tell people, and I've been saying this for 30 years now, a covenant with a person is sacred. If you are single, hold yourself pure until you're married. And if you are married, stay true to your spouse. Because the intimacy in your relationship is much bigger than a physical act. It goes much, much deeper than a physical act. In fact, your covenant with your spouse uh, in, in many ways is sealed in the intimacy in marriage and it is something that God considers sacred and the marriage bed is not to be defiled. And Reuben did it. And there were consequences. In fact, Reuben lost the place of the firstborn. Now, we're going to sprinkle this message with grace because we, we are people of the cross. We're forgiven people. Sunday came. The resurrection happened. But look, the Bible is here for our instruction. And Reuben blew it, and he lost his place. Sin has consequences. It's just the bottom line. You know, the Reubenites, as you track them as a tribe, and remember the 12 sons of Jacob become the 12 tribes of Israel, but the Reubenites were not a very prominent tribe. There's really no uh, big famous figures that come from the tribe of Reuben. They kind of depleted in numbers as the Bible unfolds. If you want to write these down, First Chronicles 26, 31 and 32, 2 Kings 10, 32 through 34, uh, all say the same thing. Reuben began to just dwindle in numbers. 
And Ecclesiastes 8, 11, and 12 says these words. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. Ecclesiastes 8, 11, and 12. Look, when Reuben did this, there seems to be no, there was no immediate consequences. In fact, the Bible says, if you go back and read this account, and I'm not going to reteach it, but it says that Jacob heard of it. He heard what he did, but there doesn't seem to be any direct rebuke in the moment. And Reuben may have been thinking, well, I got away with it. A lot of people, when they sin, they, they sin against God, and there's no immediate consequence. They don't get immediate like consequences the next day. And so they think, oh, it's fine. But the consequences came, and they came for Reuben, sadly, at his dad's deathbed. When dad said, you were my pride and my joy, but you lost the place of preeminence. Simeon and Levi, also sons uh, from Leah through Jacob, notice in verse 5, are now addressed. Simeon and Levi are brothers as Jacob continues now his prophecy. And I would imagine that Reuben was disheartened and probably not surprised. Maybe deep down he knew this day was coming. But Simeon and Levi are now addressed next, and this is um, the birth order is unfolding here from Leah. Simeon means God hears, and Levi, uh, I'll have that in front of me in a second. But anyway, Simeon and Levi are brothers. You know, you might look at that and say, duh, (laughs) we know they're brothers. But brothers here has the sense of not that they're brothers like by blood, but they're brothers in their activities and decision making. And when you call somebody a brother and they're not your family member, what you're saying is, man, this person's my bro. We hang, we enjoy the same things, we're brothers. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, that bad company corrupts good morals. So you gotta be careful who you choose as brothers. You know what I'm saying, brother? And your sisters too. Thank you, sisters. I always do this from a guy's perspective. I'm so sorry. They were brothers. And their swords are implements, would you notice, of violence. Now, Reuben's problem was a lack of self-control in the sexual area. Simeon and Levi's problem was violence. And we get a little bit more in verse 6. Jacob, speaking to these boys, says, Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. They may have been thinking after Reuben got the boot, hey, maybe we'll get the firstborn spot. No, you're not. Because in their anger, look at the middle of verse six, they slew men and in their what? Self-will, says the New American Standard, they lamed or hamstrung oxen. And when you read on this a little bit, we're not sure if this is literal or metaphorical, but we know what happened um, their sister was raped and uh, they went to Shechemite territory and killed everybody. And they did it under a ruse. Uh, the, the young man who raped their sister said, hey, I love her, 
So they went and the fathers met and basically under a ruse, these two brothers decided that they would tell, you know, the, the father said, hey, let's intermarry, let's get along, we'll, we'll sign a contract. You can marry our women and vice versa. And the two sons said, oh, sure. There's only one problem. You guys aren't circumcised. So if your whole city gets circumcised, then we'll be cool with the whole marriage and intermarrying thing. And so they met, they had a little powwow, you know, in the city. And they said, what did you guys think? Well, yeah, I guess it sounds like a pretty good idea. So all the men of the city got circumcised. I'm sure there was a little debate that day, but they all got circumcised. And when they were in the process of trying to heal, remember they didn't have Advil back in the day. The brothers came into the city with the men uh, not in fighting condition. And they slew everybody. Killed everybody. Did a snatch and grab of their sister. And Jacob said to them, why did you do this? You have dishonored my name. Why have you been violent like this? And the, the brothers said, well, well, what, what were we going to do? Are you going to just allow her, paraphrase, to allow her to be raped by these men? And they killed everybody. Everybody. Anger. You know, if you start looking at what's happening here on the deathbed of Jacob, we can find some very common sins. They're all in vice lists in the New Testament. You can write down Galatians 5, 22 and 23 for the fruits of the Spirit, but a little bit before that are the fruits of the flesh. We like to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And we love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. But have you ever read the fruit of the flesh list? Oh, it's ugly. <laughs> ugly. And you know that a lot of it is about divisions and dissensions among people, factions and divisions and fighting and all of that stuff. A lot of that is the fruit of the flesh. But there's also the idea of anger. Uh, James says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Look, there's such a thing as righteous anger, and I think that the brothers had every right to be righteously angry, but to go and wipe out everybody in the village? I don't know. The perpetrator should have been dealt with. But look, if they're going to apply the same justice, then shouldn't they have killed Reuben? Shouldn't they have applied the same kind of justice to their own actions? But they went and did this, and in the moment, maybe it seemed like a righteous thing to do. We're going to pay back these, these guys. Look at um, verse 6 again. In their self-will, they hamstrung oxen. Back in the day, and this is why this could be metaphorical, what they would do is if they wanted to deal with a, a, an enemy, they would cut, cut the hamstrings of the horses and then the armies could not travel. So when we say, I feel hamstrung in life, that means like I don't feel like I can accomplish what I want to accomplish. This is what they would do in ancient times. They would just cut the, the hamstring of the animal and, and you know, just make it lame. And so here's what Jacob says to these two. Cursed be their anger, verse 7, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. See, they weren't just angry and, and dealing with the perpetrator. It became fierce, it became wrath, it became cruel. And he says, I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You know, anger, uh, some of the Greek words for anger have the idea of 
that which is which boils over. I'm an Italian, you guys know, I enjoy cooking my pasta. And sometimes if you put too much water in a pan and you let it boil unattended, it will boil over the top of the pan. And it, have you ever tried to clean up your stove after boiling water went onto your stove? It's such a pain. It makes a mess of everything. Their anger got to a place where it boiled over and it killed a bunch of people, a bunch of lives were impacted, and they are scattered in Israel. You say, well, who are these two tribes again, Pastor Michael? We'll look back, Simeon and Levi. Um, not a whole lot about Simeon. Uh, but Levi, here's, here's a blessing out of a curse, if you want to put it that way. Levi becomes very prominent in the life of Israel. And here's, here's how it worked. Levi, even though they had no portion, no land portion or inheritance, their portion was the Lord. And Levi became the Levitical line from which we get the priests. And Aaron was from the tribe of Levi, coming from Amram and Yoshebed. Moses was from Levi. And so even though uh, Levi blew it and all of that, um, you can write down Deuteronomy 18, 1 and 2 for uh, the Lord is their portion. Um, John the Baptist was from the tribe of Levi. And he became the forerunner of the Messiah. So sometimes we, we may have a history where we did something, our, our anger and maybe even associated violence made a mess of things. I'm sure nobody in the room wants to raise their hand to this one, but if you've ever had out of control anger, you know what a mess it can make. I'll make a confession. Some years ago, uh, when I was first starting to do, I used to do all my sermons handwritten. Can you believe it? Some of you guys still do this, but I would write out the scriptures right out of my Bible, right? And then computers came along. So I first started working on a computer, and we had a little office in a, a former house where uh, Brenda and I lived. And um, Brenda was saying, okay, now when you're working on a document, you need to save your work as you're going. And I was like, I was like, why do you got to save it as you're going? I'll just save it when I'm done. <laughs> Famous words from your wife. Trust me, save your work as you're going. So I spent all day, I was preparing a, a talk on a couple of cults and it was going to happen that evening and I was, you know, hours and hours and hours of preparation and I'm typing this thing up, buttoning up the last little bit of it and all of a sudden, the power and the house went out. My computer screen went blank. And I began to yell down the hallway, Brenda, am I saved? Brenda, am I saved? And I heard back down the hallway, I hope so, you're a pastor. And I said, no, the document. Is the document saved? And she said, did you do what I told you to do and save it as you were working? <laughs> and I went, no, I did not. Do you think it's still there? So anyway, the power came back on. I lost like three quarters of my work. So I went into the garage. Pastor Michael. Oh, I didn't just scream. I threw some things around. <laughs> the devil, I know the devil did power in the... Right? It was all my fault. I should have just saved my work, right? 
Yeah, it wasn't pretty. I'm glad there's no film, film footage. <laughs> All God's people said, yep. <laughs> All right. Now, we're not going to get through all of these prophecies, so what I'm going to do is we're going to end with Judah. Judah will be addressed next, but I want you to keep in mind that even though this happened with Levi and anger was at the root of it, the Levitical line became really the priest that ministered to God and you know, did the sacrifices, a very prominent role. So it doesn't mean that if you've blown it in this way, God can't still use you and use you in a very holy calling. Verse 8, Judah, now Judah is addressed, and uh, he, we're down now to the fourth child from Leah. So, you know, Judah has to be thinking, man, this hasn't gone well for the first three. <laughs> you know, <laughs> could you call somebody else up? And notice what happens. Judah, your brothers shall, what? They'll praise you. Judah's name, this is a play on word, words in Hebrew because Judah's name means praise. And so your brothers will praise you. You might say, well, I, I thought we're not supposed to praise men. We're supposed to praise God. Yeah, but in this sense, it's your brothers will bow down to you like they bow down to kings, like the, the brothers uh, bowed down to Joseph, Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. You're going to have a lot of victories. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Other members here in the tribes, their offspring are going to bow down to Judah. All of a sudden, Judah comes up and he gets a blessing. You say, well, that must mean that Judah was a really good guy, right? Well, no, Judah had his moment. Judah uh, had his own blunder. He got Tamar his daughter-in-law pregnant. Do you remember this story? It wasn't that long ago that we dealt with this one. Um, husbands were dying off. Uh, his sons were dying off. And so he was supposed to do the, what's called the Leverite law. And um, he was losing sons quickly. So they didn't follow through with the youngest boy. And so what ended up happening is she, she stayed you know, without offspring. And uh, she dressed as a prostitute. Remember this story? And Judah saw her and he was with her and she got impregnated and uh, he gave her a couple of tokens, remember? And then when he heard the news that his daughter-in-law was pregnant, he was going to have her killed. And then she, you know, before it happened, she says, uh, just, just check out and see who these belong to. And it was like... <laughs> and he said these words in the story. He said, she is more righteous than I. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I think in, in the differences of the, the sons, Judah took ownership of it. He owned it. Do you know that sin and its consequences can be a lot less grave if we'll just own things and get things right and, and, and admit things in the moment? It can be very hard for us to do. And so as Judah goes on and you follow Judah's life, his, his change in ownership of his sin began to manifest itself in ever-growing leadership. It was Judah who pleaded before Joseph, the viceroy of Egypt, before he knew it was Joseph, for Benjamin's life. In fact, it was Judah who said, I will take his spot, I will be his substitute, a foreshadowing of the gospel. Christ the righteous one died on our behalf. He became our substitute. And Judah began to take on this place and he began to show leadership and prominence. 
And from the Lion of Judah comes men like David, Solomon, Asa, Josiah, Uzziah, good kings. In fact, of, of, when you, le- you read the Kings and Chronicles books, how many times do you come across a king and it says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. But from the line of Judah, there were some good kings. At least they were better than the ones in the north. And they often tried to uh, rid the nation of idolatry and, and get things done the right way. The most prominent man that comes from Judah is David. Uh, David did subdue Israel's enemies. In fact, in 2 Samuel 22, verses 40 through 43, he's writing a psalm and he says, in verse 41, you have made my enemies to turn their backs to me. You gave me the necks of my enemies. That's 2 Samuel 22, 41 in the New King James. And I destroyed those who hated me. Verse 43 of that same section, 2 Samuel twenty-two forty-three says, Then I pulverized them as dust, the dust of the earth. I crushed and stamped them as the mire of the streets. Judah is a lion's whelp. Judah is like a lion. A lion is what? The king of the beasts, right? Except for the cowardly lion. He wasn't the king at all, right? He was afraid of everything. <laughs> I'm afraid of them. Anyway, we won't go there. But Judah is a lion's whelp. And from the prey, my son, dad, addressing prophetically in a predictive way, speaking to Judah as they're all gathered around dad on his deathbed, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? And then this incredible prophecy in the book of Genesis. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Between his feet speaks of his offspring. Until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now in this incredible section where firstborns are losing their place of preeminence and then sons two and three come and they lose their spot, all of a sudden Judah, whose name means praise, is told that he's like a lion and his enemies are going to be crushed and there's going to be a scepter. Now what's a scepter? A scepter is the implement of what? Of a king. In fact, I heard that where they still have kings, whether they're just a figurehead of a country or whatever, there's, in a lot of cases, they still have scepters and they lock the scepter away because the scepter actually becomes a symbolic uh, uh, implement of their own authority. The scepter is that which a king carries. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, Psalm chapter 2. Jesus is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And he, Jesus, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, that's a song that we haven't sung for a while, but here's how it goes. Hail, hail to the lion of Judah. How powerful you are. Right, and we, we sang it. Hail! Hail to the lion! And C.S. Lewis wrote a whole story around a lion named Aslan, right? Aslan. I love it when he eats the witch. <laughs> Isn't it a great scene? Right? So that, that white witch, what's her name again? I can't even remember her name. Just tricking kids with candy and all that stuff. 
wicked. And finally, he just, it's great. In the story, what does Aslan end up doing? He ends up, he has to undo what Edmund did. And so he, he ends up dying and then rising. It's a great kind of parallel to the story of the gospel with a lion as the main character. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, verse 10, nor the ruler's staff, just kind of the same idea of a scepter, from between his feet, his offspring, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, if you go down through time and you look at kings that flow from Judah, David, Solomon, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, Josiah, uh, many good kings coming uh, the NIV says the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. Here's the idea. Judah is supposed to steward the scepter until the actual king of kings comes. And he is king of kings and lord of lords and Judah is going to hold the scepter. Jesus will be a type of the greater David where the tribes of Israel, north and south, will reunite again under the Messiah's leadership and the scepter will be handed to him, the rightful owner, and until Shiloh comes, until uh, the one comes to whom it belongs, and that's what scholars believe is probably the closest definition of Shiloh, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, New Living Translation has the idea, here it is, Shiloh, he's going to arrive, the Messiah's coming and he's going to take the scepter and he's going to rule and reign forever and ever. Amen? Amen. He's going to be on his throne. Hail, hail to the Lion of Judah. But this lion is also depicted as a lamb. Because in Revelation 5, and I think we're familiar with the passage, but I want to take you there because I want to show you all the way to the last book of the Bible. This is what John sees. And John has seen an incredible scene as the seven churches are addressed in Revelation 2 and 3. He is taken up. He gets a glimpse of heaven in Revelation 4. Uh, praise is going on. These incredible creatures around the throne of God, they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then it says this, who was and who is and who is to come. In chapter 5, verse 1, Revelation, John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book Uh, There weren't books in these days, so it would have been a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. This is the famous scroll with the seven seals that will be broken. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Revelation 5-2, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, on the earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. A universal search takes place. Notice it's in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, everywhere. The search uh, uh, progresses and no one is found worthy. John knows what this means because in ancient days, scrolls were very important. A seven-sealed scroll was found in one of the ancient libraries. I'm trying to remember which one. And uh, they actually have a, I've seen a picture of it. And the only one who could really break the seals on the scroll to unveil the document was the rightful owner uh, or an heir. 
And so they, they do this universal search and the document seems to represent the title deed to the earth. It's whether or not mankind can truly be redeemed. Whether or not the, the earth can be purchased back. Yeah, noise in the background there. And John says, after the search uh, commences and no one is found, he says, I began to weep greatly because... No one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. John is weeping like a baby. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, look. The lion that is from what? The tribe of Judah. The root of David. So you can see how it comes down from David's line. Has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb. Now he's called a lion in verse 5. Now he's a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns. Horns speak of power here. Seven is the number of perfection. He has complete power. Seven eyes here probably speaks of his omniscience, which are the seven spirits of God, I think connecting to the work of the Holy Spirit, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it, that is the scroll, out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne or sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders who we saw in Revelation 4 fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The the saints have been praying for 2,000 years plus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And they sang a new song and they said, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. They're going to reign with him. And then, of course, this incredible choir. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands and they said with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them and I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion for how long? forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, hey, they say this in heaven too. Amen. Amen. And the elders fell, fell down and worshiped. Back to Genesis and we'll finish it. The prophecy of Judah uh, ends this particular section with what are pictures of prosperity under the rule of the lion. And I believe this pictures the millennial kingdom the thousand-year reign of Christ. Just pick it up. We'll do the last two verses. And Shane, if you can get ready to come on up. It says, He, that is this one who comes, Shiloh, the rightful king, Genesis 49, 11, he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now, <clears throat> I wouldn't normally tie a donkey to a vine. Vine's not very strong. I'd tie a donkey to a tree, maybe. I wouldn't even talk... I wouldn't even tie my dog to a vine. But this vine has unusual strength. So he ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt, interesting, to the choice of the vine. We're about to the choice vine. We're about to remember the triumphal entry of Christ. And he rides on a colt, the foal of a donkey, interestingly enough. 
And he comes, and they say, they're quoting from Psalm 118, the Hallel Psalms. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Send prosperity. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. This is not ushering in the millennial reign. This is about a time when I'm coming to die for the sins of the world. I'm coming to defeat your greatest enemy, sin and death. But in the millennial reign, when he comes the second time, he washes his garments in wine. It would seem here that wine is so numerous, wine in uh, Jewish culture, a sign of blessing. Wine is so abundant that you could wash your clothes in it. Doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because we usually have Tide and detergent and stuff like that to get stuff like that out of the clothes. But it's a metaphor. It's, it's symbolic of there's so much prosperity happening that you could even wash your clothes in wine. I wouldn't try that if I were you, but anyway, that's what it says. He washes his garments in wine, symbols of prosperity, his robes in the blood of grapes. Uh, when Jesus did his first miracle in the book of John, he turned water into wine. He did it from what... Uh, was the, the basins for purifying and washing. And he did this incredible miracle, symbolic of uh, the, the Jews used to say, the rabbis used to say that when the Messiah comes, the wine will be abundant. And so this sign that was done by Jesus turning water into wine was to prove his Messiahship. And in Jewish circles, they would get the connection. When Messiah, when Shiloh comes, the wine will be so abundant that you could wash your clothes in it and Jesus turns water into wine in abundance. And it's in essence, he's saying, I'm here. Will you recognize me? Second part of the verse in verse 12 says, his eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Now again, these are metaphors um, vines have become hitching posts wine has become wash water says one scholar wine and milk are symbols of prosperity here's what Isaiah says ho everyone who thirsts come to the waters you who have no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without cost if you want to write this down this is my final verse for tonight it's found in the book of Joel Three sixteen through 21. I'm going to read it for us and it says this. The Lord roars from Zion. Here's our lion. And he utters his voice from Jerusalem. This is last day's millennial reign stuff. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And it will come about in that day, Joel 3.18, that the mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, Jerusalem for all generations. And I, says this lion of the tribe of Judah, I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. This is the one who's coming. 
Shiloh, the rightful king is coming. Have you heard? Do you not know? Have you not seen? The Bible says on many occasions, don't you know? Jesus is coming. That hasn't changed. God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. Messiah is coming. We don't know the day or the hour. I think we'll have an idea of the season when it comes. But he's coming again. And he will set what's been wrong right again. And there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. The curse will be no more. And abundance will flow. This is what's ahead for the Christians of the world. And that's why we preach the good news of the gospel. Father, thank you for the hope of the gospel. Bless these precious saints with encouragement that the lion of the tribe of Judah was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The lion became the lamb that he might die for us. But when you come the second time, Lord, you're going to roar. You're going to make everything right again, restore and renovate this world and our bodies will rise in conjunction, I believe, with this new heaven and new earth. And we will see you face to face. Eden will be restored. The tree of life will be seen again. A river will flow out from the throne of God. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.